You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Thank you, Tina, for reading God's word to us. Great to see all of you today. It's great to worship with you. If you have a Bible, keep it open or open it or pull it up on your phone to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at this a little more closely, and I want you to be able to see it because, as you can tell, Paul, it's kind of an uh, involved argument that Paul gives us here, but it's, it's wonderful what he's, what he's teaching, and I want you to be able to, to see it more closely. Uh, last night, I went to the, the UT football game and uh, first game of the season, and if you've ever been to a big college football game, no matter what your team, no matter what the school, you know that when you're at a game like that, it's, it's really easy to kind of get sucked into the hype. Uh, you got the you got the cra- you got the crowd noise. You got the the bright colors. You got the, the the band. You got the crowd cheering. You got the celebrities. You're like, is that McConaughey? I think that's McConaughey. Uh, and you're, you're just like you're in the moment. And you're like this this is the place to be. This is where it's at. This is this a little taste of the glory. And I hope I feel this way next week after Alabama comes to town. I'm not sure what what my odds are on that. But I think that. College football, in many ways, is kind of a microcosm of how our culture views the world. It's kind of a metaphor for how our culture thinks about the world. There are winners and losers. The winners are the ones who are stronger and smarter and faster and the ones that have the most talent and the most resources. There's a road to glory. And the way you get to the glory is through human effort. Right, through, through, through human excellence, through human expertise. And everyone wants to be a part of the glory. Everybody wants to be associated with the winning team. Everyone wants to be associated with success. That's the way of the world. That's actually just the wisdom of the world. We all want to be a part of glory in some way. And that's the kind of wisdom that was getting the Corinthian church off the, off, off the rails, off track. That kind of worldly wisdom was leading to factions in the church, divisions of the church, in the church. We, we looked at that last week. Everybody wanted to be on the winning team. So people were saying, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. I'm a Peter guy. I follow the most eloquent speaker. I follow the strongest leader. I follow the smartest theologian. The, the Corinthian Christians were simply living according to worldly wisdom. They were seeing the world just like the world sees the world, meaning it's the eloquent and the educated people who are the ones that are esteemed and respected in the culture. It's, it's the strong, it's the powerful who get ahead in the world. The goal in life is to be successful. The goal is to make a name for yourself, to be on the winning team, to be a part of the glory. So even though The Corinthians were the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were boasting in things like their own social connections. They were were putting confidence in their own abilities. They were taking pride in their own wisdom, which is why in our text today, Paul has to remind them about the wisdom of God found in the gospel. The wisdom of God turns the wisdom of the world upside down. It's a complete flip-flop which means the gospel looks like total foolishness to the world. But it's really, Paul says, the wisdom and the power of God. In this section, Paul is gonna set up a theology that's actually gonna carry throughout the rest 
of the letter. And it's gonna impact every issue that he addresses in the letter. And here's the theology. The foolish wisdom of the gospel turns our view of the world upside down. The foolish wisdom of the gospel turns our view of the world upside down. And Paul talks about three things in this passage that display the foolish wisdom of the gospel. Three things. The first thing that displays God's foolish wisdom is the cross, the cross of Jesus. Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross, the message of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now the message of the cross is something that's very familiar to us. We are 21st century American Christians. We hear about the cross all the time and the cross generally sounds positive to us. Sometimes it almost sounds sweet and sentimental to us. We put crosses on jewelry. We put crosses on greeting cards. Just check out Etsy, right? I don't really know what Etsy is, but I looked at it this week. And there's every kind of cross greeting card imaginable on there. Because, you know, you want to get a cross greeting card. Because like, oh, that's so sweet and inspiring. It's the cross. It's so heartwarming. That's not how first century Corinthians would have seen the cross, the practice of crucifixion was actually still part of their culture. It was still happening, even in their city, probably. And it was, it was horrific. It was gross. You would not put an image of a person being tortured to death like on your journal, right, or on a greeting card. That would be ludicrous. It'd be foolish. And so Paul says there are actually two ways of seeing the cross, he said, those who are perishing, those who don't know God, see the cross as folly, foolishness. It's the same root word as our word moron. The word of the cross is moronic to them. But for those who are being saved, he says, the word of the cross is the power of God. In other words, the cross displays a wisdom that we cannot see on our own. The world cannot see the wisdom of the cross on its own. And the Corinthian Christians actually knew that. They were Christians, but they were reverting back to worldly wisdom to direct them instead of trusting in God's wisdom. They were, they were reverting back to earthly wisdom to guide them in life, kind of like Israel did many times in the Old Testament, which is why I think Paul quotes an Old Testament passage in verse 19. He quotes from Isaiah 29. Look at verse 19. He says, for it is written, Isaiah says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The people of Judah were turning away from God's wisdom because they were in trouble and they were trying to save themselves and they were, they were trusting in their own wisdom. And God says, hey, I'm gonna destroy the wisdom of the world. Don't trust that, trust my wisdom. And then Paul brings that passage forward to Corinth. And he says basically the same thing in verse 20. He asks four rhetorical questions in verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And then he asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So in verse 20, the wise were the philosophers of the day. 
The scribes were the experts in the Mosaic law. They were the religious experts. And the debaters of, of this age were the rhetoricians. They were the popular speakers in, in that day. And all of these people were the, the esteemed people in that culture. They were like the celebrities. They were the PhD scholars. They were the thought leaders. These were the people that got invited to speak at TED Talks. Everyone wanted to hear from them because they had wisdom. They had insight into the way the world worked. But Paul says, where are these people? Hasn't God proven that all their vaunted wisdom just turns out to be foolishness? Like all their mighty wisdom just ends up looking foolish. Why? Because no matter how wise they are, they can't find God on their own. No matter how smart they are, they can't come to know God without God's help, which is what verse 21 says. Look at verse 21. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world cannot come to know God through its own wisdom. So it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which is the cross, to save those who believe. The world did not, could not know God through its own wisdom. Like the wisest of the wise could not find ultimate reality, which is God, through their own wisdom. The smartest of the smart couldn't define ultimate meaning through the use of their own intellect. Even the most devout religious leaders in the world couldn't come to a saving of knowledge of God on their own. So when it comes to knowing the mysteries of God, who he is, what he's up to, Paul is saying that worldly wisdom always fails us. It always lets us down. Now, the craving for worldly wisdom took two dominant forms in Corinth. In Corinth, a city like that in the Roman Empire, uh, there were Jews and there were Gentiles, Jews and Greeks in a city like that. And look at the dominant forms of wisdom they were uh, craving. Look at verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So Jews demand miraculous signs. In other words, if they're gonna, if they're gonna believe that God is present, in a situation, if they're, going to be, if they're going to believe that God is with someone, then they're going to need to see some proof. They're going to need to see some evidence of his power. Remember in the Gospels that the Jews often asked Jesus to give them a sign to prove who he was, to prove he was from God. John chapter 6, they came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see it and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Remember, bread came down from heaven in the wilderness and, the, and they got to eat. Jesus, can you do something like that? Show us a sign. Jews demand signs. But Greeks don't demand signs. What do they want? They want wisdom. They valued philosophy and rhetoric and persuasive arguments. They were like, if you want us to believe you, then give us a profound teaching. Like wow us with an, a sophisticated argument and then we might consider what you're saying. Jews demand signs, power, and Greeks seek wisdom. But look at verse 23. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. We don't preach, we don't give you signs. We don't preach wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block, verse 23 says, to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. The idea of a crucified Christ was offensive to Jews. It was a stumbling block to them. They, they tripped over that idea and they couldn't get past it. It's like when you trip on your bedpost in the middle of the night, right? It, at that point, you're down, you can't go on after that. 
it's over. You're like, I'm done. That's how the, the, the Jews tripped over Christ crucified because the Christ was supposed to be a powerful ruler who overcame the powers of the world. But if he was crucified, then that means he was defeated by the powers of the world. And so for the Jews, that was a non-starter. If the Christ was crucified, he was not the Christ. He wasn't the Christ. And the Gentiles were looking for a wise teacher. They were not looking for a crucified criminal. They're like, you're trying to tell me that one man, one poor Jewish carpenter dying on a Roman cross in Jerusalem is God's plan to save the world. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Only a moron would believe that. It's folly to them. So the idea of a crucified Christ is weak to the Jews and it's dumb to the Greeks. That's the message of the cross. It's weak and it's dumb. But verse 24 says, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, but to those who are called, to those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called. For the foolishness of God, verse 25 says, or the foolish thing of God, the cross, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, the, the weak thing of God, the cross, is stronger than men. According to verse 24, the calling of God, listen to this, the calling of God opens a person's eyes to, 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 to see reality in, in a new way, to see the wisdom and power of God where they didn't see it before. Like, let me ask you, where do you see the wisdom and power of God most evident in the world, most clearly revealed in the world? Like, where does God show himself most clearly? Is it in a beautiful sunset? Is it when you go out on a clear night and look up at the sky and you see the heavens and the stars and the universe and you're like, wow, that's the wisdom and power of God? Is it when you're at the Grand Canyon or in the mountains and you see the beauty and the majesty of creation? According to this, God's wisdom and power is most clearly revealed in the least likely of places on the cross of Jesus. The foolish and the weak death of Jesus is where God displayed his wisdom to change the world and his power to do it. So I think we need to ask ourselves, where are we in danger of being like the Corinthian Christians who were, I think, wanting to move beyond the wisdom and power of the cross? They were kind of wanting to move on to other things. Maybe the message of the cross seems kind of elementary to us because we've heard it so many times and we're looking for some higher wisdom to build our faith on. Like we need some more impressive theology to help us grow in our faith, to take us to the next level. Or maybe the message of the cross has become old hat to us. It doesn't give us all the feels like it used to, right? It doesn't give us the powerful religious experience that it once did. And we're like, God, give me something new. Give me a new experience of your power because the cross has gotten honestly a little bit boring to me. What Paul is saying here is we never move beyond the cross, right? Because the cross is where God shows his wisdom and power. It's where his wisdom, his power is most poignantly displayed. The foolish wisdom of the gospel is displayed on the cross of Jesus, but there's a second thing here that displays God's foolish wisdom, and that's the church. 
the church. You got the cross and then you got the church. The Corinthians themselves are actually an illustration of God's foolish wisdom. Look at verse 26. He starts talking about the Corinthians now. Look at verse 26. I wanna break it down a little bit. Verse 26 says, for consider your calling, brothers. In other words, think about who you were before God called you to be a part of his people, part of the church. Think about that. Consider that calling. And then he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, meaning most of y'all weren't that smart. He's not insulting them. He's just telling them the truth. He's like, some of y'all were in the top 10% of your class, but most of you were just pretty average. You weren't that wise according to worldly standards. And then he says, and not many of you were powerful. Meaning most of you are not corner office guys, right? You were, you were not the power brokers, the influencers, the decision makers. You were just out in the cubicles with all the common folk. You weren't that powerful. Just want you to consider that before you came to Christ. And then he ends the verse by saying, and not many of you were of noble birth. You weren't blue bloods. You weren't high society. You didn't have all the right social connections. We don't talk in terms of no, noble birth in, in our culture. Uh, but this made me think this week of Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Darcy, you know this story. I have seen the A&E version of Pride and Prejudice multiple times. And that's six episodes. Six episodes of PNP. That's the kind of husband that I am. But I couldn't help but think of it when I saw that phrase, noble birth. Because Mr. Darcy, if you know the story, is of noble birth. And one of my favorite scenes is when he comes to propose marriage to Elizabeth, who is not of noble birth. And this is what Mr. Darcy says to her. He, he says to Elizabeth, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. I gotta read this because I can't, I mean, I can't talk like him. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. But in declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going expressly against the wishes of my family, my friends, and my own better judgment. Because, because the relative situation of our families is such that any alliance between us must be regarded as a highly reprehensible connection. But it cannot be helped. I beg you to relieve my suffering and consent to be my wife. In other words, your social ranking is decidedly beneath mine, but will you marry me? See, the prevailing cultural wisdom in Corinth was kind of like that. It really was. You didn't, you didn't mix across socioeconomic lines. Like you stayed with your people. You grouped according to status. But Paul is saying the church was different. The church displayed a different kind of wisdom. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, hey, God didn't call you into the church because you were so awesome and because you had so much to offer. In fact, most of you didn't have the smarts or the strength or the status to commend yourself to anyone, let alone God. But, verse 27, look at verse 27. It's awesome. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world. Really? to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, really, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose, God chose, God chose. God's choices in these verses look like foolishness to the world. They are the complete opposite of what the world would choose. He turns the world's way of measuring human value 
upside down, doesn't he? He's always done this. He's always worked like this. He chose little old Israel, a nation that was enslaved for 400 years to be the light of the world. He chose a scrappy young shepherd boy to be the greatest king that nation would ever know. He chose a poor teenage girl to be the mother of the Messiah. He chose a small band of uneducated fishermen to be the apostles of Jesus. And he chose a bunch of relative nobodies to be his glorious church. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love that. Factions and divisions were forming in the Corinthian church because people were boasting about being on Paul's team and Apollo's team. They were boasting about their own wisdom, their own gifts, their own social connections. They were putting their confidence and trust in those things rather than in the grace of God. And I think we're so susceptible to the same thing because we, just like the Corinthians, live in a meritocracy. That's the cultural wisdom that we breathe in and out every day. Day in and day out, we breathe that in and out. We live in a meritocracy. It shapes us, it shapes our children, and it seeps into the church. Like we grow up in a world filled with things like class rankings and test scores and tryouts for athletic teams. From the earliest age, we're being ranked. What's your class ranking? What, what chair are you in the orchestra or, or in the band? Are you on the A team or are you, are you on the B team? We define ourselves by our resume, our abilities, our skills. We're in constant competition with one another. Even when we're kids. And, the, and we know that the smartest people win and the strongest survive. And we feel that. She feels that. Michael Sandel in his book, The Tyranny of Merit, says that our system of meritocracy has caused rising anxiety among college students. College students today are more anxious than they've ever been. And Sandel uh, says that this, uh, uh, he points out that this meritocratic system that we have has morally malformed both the winners and the losers. He says among the winners, it generates hubris, pride, boasting. And among the losers, it generates humiliation and resentment. But listen, the church is not a meritocracy. The church is a place of grace. The church flips the wisdom of, God, of the world upside down. It's not a community where we boast in ourselves, or at least it ought not be. Our only boast is Jesus. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We no longer trust in worldly wisdom because Jesus has become our wisdom. Jesus has become our new way of seeing the world. He's our wisdom. In Christ, he says, we have righteousness, meaning we're in right relationship with God. In Christ, we have sanctification, meaning we're set apart to live differently. In Christ, we have redemption, meaning we're set free from slavery to sin and death and the worldly wisdom that so presses down on us. Jesus is our boast. And so Paul quotes another Old Testament passage here. Did you notice it? It's from Jeremiah chapter nine. He's making his point by quoting Jeremiah. This is the full quote. 
Jeremiah says, thus says, the, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why? Because those are the things that the world boasts in, wisdom and might and wealth. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands me and knows me, that he's been, meaning that, he, that he's been included in my people, the church, simply by grace. Let him boast in that. Let her boast in that. The foolish wisdom of God is displayed on the cross, but it's also displayed in the church. And finally, it's displayed in one more thing that Paul mentions. It's displayed in gospel proclamation, gospel preaching. Look at, verse, look at chapter two, verse one. The foolish wisdom of God is displayed in the proclamation of the gospel. Look at chapter two, verse one. He says, and I, so now he's gonna talk about himself. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but they were in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is the power of God? Well, it's the word of the cross. It's what it says in chapter one, verse 18, our first verse today. The power of God is the word of the cross, the message of the cross. And Paul is saying, I wanted your faith to rest in that, in the word of the cross. One of the highest values, we've said this already in, in Corinth, was rhetorical skill, was being a good speaker, being able to communicate wisdom with eloquence and flair and persuasion. But Paul says, when I preached the gospel to you, I did not play that game. That's not how I came. I didn't try to impress you with my preaching. I didn't come with lofty speech or fancy wisdom. I came in weakness. I came in fear and trembling. And so what we see is that Paul's preaching style was just like his message. It was foolishness to the world. His style matched his message in that if you looked at it just on the surface, it looked like foolishness to the world because the cultural wisdom said, hey, if you wanna persuade people, then you better come with confidence and you better have some rhetorical flair and rhetorical skill. But Paul did not do that. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. See, Paul decided to make himself small in the message of the crucified Christ, large, because the power of gospel proclamation is not in the messenger. It's in the message, right? The, the power of gospel proclamation is not in the delivery. It's in the content of what's being said. It's hard to believe that though, isn't it? It's so hard to believe that because cultural wisdom tells us that if we wanna be heard with our message of the gospel, then we've gotta proclaim the gospel with flair and, and wisdom and creativity. It's ironic, but I felt that even this week, e even though these verses were part of my passage, I felt the pressure this week to come up with a good sermon. I was fretting over whether or not I was gonna be interesting or informative or provocative or funny or wise. And you're thinking, yeah, you were none of those things. Um, but listen, it's, it's hard not to focus on yourself when you're proclaiming the gospel. We, I think we all feel the pressure to have all the answers, don't we? 
or, or to have a well-formed argument or persuasive points. We feel the pressure to be eloquent or smart or pithy or creative. But what we really have to offer people is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we have to offer. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when we say Christ crucified, that's just shorthand for the entire gospel. Right? We, we know that Christ is also resurrected, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he is the crucified one. The resurrected Lord is always the crucified Lord and the benefits of his cross apply to us forever. And so Christ crucified is what we have to offer people. I had a seminary professor uh, that used to tell us and he would say this several times throughout the semester. He would say, what you have to offer people is the bloody death of Jesus. And occasionally, you know, he would just throw that in at the at midway through a lecture. What you, he was preparing us future ministers. What you have to offer people is the bloody death of Jesus. And the first couple of times I heard him say that, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to say it like that. That doesn't sound exact. I'd like to give, I think I'd like to offer some people something that sounds a little more winsome, a little more wise. And that was his point. That the bloody death of Jesus is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. Why does the cross have power to save? John Stott says it better than I could say it. Why does the cross have the power to save? Listen to what John Stott says. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's what sin is, when we try to substitute ourselves for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man on the cross. He says, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be, on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. Who would have come up with something like that as the way to save the world? Who would have ever thought of something like that? It is foolish. It's the foolish wisdom of God. Let's thank him for his wisdom. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.